0: Stand with me for just a moment as we go into the word today, uh, turning our attention to First Peter chapter three, verses one through four. When you find that, say I got it. If you need a minute, say just a minute. All right. First Peter chapter three, verses one through four. I'll be reading from the uh, the e- English Standard Version, ESV. We're continuing our series Exile Studies in 1st Peter. Our text this morning reads as follows. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Amen. I want to talk from this thought today, the good wife. The good wife. You may be seen in the presence of the Lord. Now immediately I'm in trouble with every woman in here, that's a wife, (laughs) right from the beginning, because in your mind you're thinking, when is he going to talk about the good husband? I promise you that is coming. (laughs) All right, need to get that settled right away. Um, But the good wife, In, um, in this section of his letter to the spiritual and the physical exiles of his day, Peter here continues to... Promote a theme of submission, this time applying the power of submission to the marital relationship. Now it may be hard to believe, but marriage in the time of this writing was not a perfect institution. Sometimes we live in a world that's kind of make-believe that, that somehow, thousand years ago, marriage was so much easier than it is today. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. Marriage, what had, there was much abuse in the marital relationship, and women often suffered tremendously at the hands and or whims of men who viewed their wives as little more than child bearers and objects of intimate pleasure. Now, before exploring the statements written by Peter in this text, it is important to note the context in which he writes. Peter continues this theme of submission for sure, but he does not argue for submission from the perspective of the one who is in authority. He does not do that. On the contrary, he makes the case for submission and its benefits from the position of the weaker party. For example, he argues that citizens and those who dwell under the jurisdiction of nations or cities must be subject to the ruling authorities. In addition, he argues that servants must be subject to their masters or in the modern context, employees should submit to their employers. In each instance thus far, Peter makes the powerful point that our submission is a manner by which we recognize, honor, and promote Christ. And You don't have to get quiet there. Submission is not easy. It's not easy. Submitting to government authorities that we don't agree with is not easy. Submitting to an employer that we feel does not have our best interests at heart is not easy. And submitting when we sense that there has been injustice is not easy easy. Submission is not easy, but don't get it mistaken. Don't be mistaken that the whole process of submission is not designed for ease. It's designed that we magnify Jesus Christ. And so submission is not an easy thing. So now Peter turns his attention in this discussion of submission to the marital relationship. He seeks to address the issue, likely because as in our day, there was much abuse in marriage. Now, before we unpack Peter's words, let us examine the current state of the marital relationship. Now, perhaps there is no relationship between human beings that faces more scrutiny consternation, and disdain than the marital relationship. Seemingly, since its inception, marriage has been dissected, ridiculed, and under spiritual attack. Many jokes have been told about marriage. For instance, the story is told of a speaker at a woman's club who was lecturing on marriage and she asked the audience, "How many of you wanted to mother your husband? And one member in the back row raised her hand, and the woman who was speaking said, said uh, "You want to mother your husband?" And she looked at the lady looked at her and said, "Mother, I thought you said smother." Another lady tells this story. After finishing our Chinese food, my husband and I cracked open our fortune cookies. Mine read, be quiet for a little while. His read, talk while you have a chance. (laughs) And finally, one lady said, my ex and I had a very amicable divorce. I know this because when I wrote the Facebook status, I'm getting a divorce, he was the first one to click like. I'm here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress. (laughs) So my brothers and sisters, marriage has been under fire. Before the highest court in our land, something almost unthinkable is being considered. That is how to define marriage. Since its inception and according to every scripture reference, Marriage is a union of one man and one woman. Yet our modern culture would have us to believe that somehow that's not so. In fact, I suggest to you today that the biblical concept of marriage is under attack in other ways as well. Many of which do not receive the media attention of the same gender marriage controversy. Furthermore, I would say that the marital gender issue is a result of ignoring a trend that has existed regarding marriage for a long time. That is, the church has been largely silent regarding biblical marriage. Christians have, by and large, sat silent and idle as Western civilization imposed its definition of marriage upon the church. Believers have even subscribed to a belief about marriage that subverted and twisted the roles in marriage, so much so that it's increasingly difficult to distinguish the husband from the wife, with the exception of biological differences. As believers, modern culture determined to make us feel old-fashioned, out of touch, and disconnected from reality. Because we have the audacity to teach that the role of the husband and the role of the wife in the family is not the same. How many times have we cowered in the face of ridicule and persecution On subjects like this. Simply because we believe that God honors the role of the husband. And God honors the role of the wife. And both are equally important in their design for the family. But both roles are not the same. Amen. Consequently, our silence gives consent for the media and those in it. To criticize biblical marriage. And provide an alternative that leads to the destruction of the family. And we must, my brothers and sisters, accept the reality that we have been complicit in the decline of the family. It's one thing for us to sit comfortably in our in our sanctuaries or attend our conferences and say oh the biggest problem in urban America today is the is the decline of the family but it's another thing altogether for us to be willing to hold our families and our marriages up as models of being able to say this is how God says it should be done I knew I wasn't going to get many amen's on that one We have to be willing to put ourselves on display Perhaps the most understated and yet most destructively, destructive worldly view of marriage that crept in into the church is a view that set up a competition between a husband and a wife. In any competition, there must be a winner and a loser. If your marriage is a competition of personalities, desires, and wants, then you will sometimes feel like you have lost. If you feel like a loser more than a winner, it will lead to bitterness and resentment, which is unhealthy for any relationship, in particular a marriage. There is no competition. That is a worldly Thought that is a worldly attribute that has been imposed upon believers to somehow think that you must compete with your spouse. Not in competition. You're setting yourselves up for bitterness and resentment to rise in your relationship. So then, what then does this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 have to offer us regarding Marriage. Peter begins this section of his letter addressing Christian wives. Now, how many ladies in here are a wife and a Christian? Let me see your hand. Show of hand. All right. Good. Amen. How many in here want to be a wife and a Christian? Amen. Praise God. All right. Amen. Ain't nothing wrong with that. (laughs) That's right. Some of you wives, encourage them. Don't look at them funny. (laughs) Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Encourage these single ladies. That's right. So, so he begins addressing Christian wives. Chapter 3. He begins chapter 3. But notice that this verse begins likewise. He is tying what he says here about Christian wives in exile to what he has said about Christian citizens, employees, and even Jesus in exile. In each case, the character of the life lived says something profound to those who oppose the Christian faith. Likewise, Christian wives. The reality on the ground in the first century is that Christianity spread across the Roman Empire. Marriages were impacted as one spouse turned turned to the faith and the other did not. A quick look at any churches was so that as a percentage, women are generally the first responders. I doubt, very seriously, there are many churches around that have more men than women. Now, that's a whole nother series of sermons, which we will get to. <laughs> but I, I think that there are some very clear reasons for that. But the reality is, is that our churches generally have more women than they do men. Now, Peter doesn't, doesn't write to Christian husbands with unbelieving wives, although this same principle, same principle applies. He writes to those Christian women who involuntarily find themselves married to men who do not share their faith. Now, as a side note, this text does not endorse anyone marrying an unbeliever. Now, I want to pull you aside for a minute and just say that if you are currently dating an unbeliever, it is never has been or never will be God's desire for you to marry an unbeliever. And one of the reasons is because we have... Uh, what we have today in our text is this idea of submitting as a Christian woman to your husband. And when you marry an unbeliever, you place yourself under the covering of someone that's not honoring God. How can that work out for you? It will not. It will not. Uh, i tell a quick story here that uh, my years in ministry have brought a young lady who uh, heard us kind of teaching on this. And, and she went off a couple weeks later. And uh, she just hurried up and got married. She was living with the guy. And she decided, I'm going to hurry up and get married. Because the pastor says, marriage is honorable to all men. And the bed undefiled. And she ran and got married and, uh, to this guy. And, and ultimately, she ran up to me and said, hey, I went to the courthouse. And I got married. Isn't that good? And I looked and said, does your husband love Jesus? Well, I'm working on him. Ultimately, that marriage lasted less than a year. Why? Because Christian ladies, let me tell you something. God is not ever going to send you a project or a man to fix up. Ever. Ever ever ever. So so and I don't care how good he looks. I don't care what color his eyes are. What kind of cologne he wears, it doesn't matter. He could have a six-pack, doesn't matter. But God is never sending you a man that you have to fix up. He's not going to do it. God loves you too much for that. Scripture says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 39, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So he never says, go and marry someone who is unsaved. It's never God's will for a Christian, male or female, to marry an unbeliever, period. Now Peter is writing to wives who come to faith after they're married. Even here we have some scandal as the Greco-Roman world expected the wife to follow the religion of the husband. Most husbands at least socially worship the Roman pantheon of gods. For a Christian woman who is trusted in Jesus, this creates a great dilemma. Should she hide her faith and go and worship Zeus? Should she leave the marriage? Peter affirms what Paul has said as well. Different faith is not the reason to leave a marriage if you've come to faith in your marriage and your husband has not. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 16. Paul says this, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, the underlying concern is the salvation and eternal state of the unbelieving spouse. The Christian in the marriage is in a powerful position of influence. And might be the tool God uses for the spouse to see the glory and beauty that Jesus died for their sins. You, if you're married to an unbeliever. And you came to faith and your unbelieving husband or wife did not. You are in a powerful position of influence for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is where Peter goes. Wives, see yourself as a gospel witness to your husband. Now, if being a missionary makes you think you have to live perfectly, you haven't really understood what being a missionary is all about. The best of them are sinners and flawed and imperfect. This is not a call For us to have fake perfectionism anymore, then the gospel says we are perfect people. The gospel actually says just the opposite. We are not. We are sinners saved by grace. By the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, missionaries are not perfect. And the call to missionary work in your marriage does not require you to live in sinless perfection. And I'm here to say that I'm glad about that one. Amen. Amen. Missionaries aren't perfect, they're forgiven. And they live out a gracious, forgiving truth before the people that they're seeking to reach. A Christian wife should do the same thing. Now, Peter gives us here three means by which Christian wives reach the heart of their husbands. And all three, my brothers and sisters, relate to the concept of beauty because men are attracted to beauty. Come on, man, help me out here. That's right. That's right. You know when your wife get all dialed up and fixed up, you look at her like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Amen. Amen. So, so... it relates to beauty. These three, three elements here we want to share with you. The first thing is the beauty of a submissive spirit. The beauty of a submissive spirit. He says in verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, here's one little thing I want to throw in for free. Imagine how your husband feels. If you come home talking about everything you did for your boss and you won't get him a glass of Kool-Aid. Oh, I went to work today, and, and I made the coffee, and, and I did this, and, and my boss asked me to handle this project, and I handled it right away, and, and I'm just doing so much everything, and he just depends on me as the greatest little thing that, that's up there, and he says, Honey, can I have a drink of water? Get it yourself. What I look like, your servant. I'm just saying. Now, me and y'all can't let me preach this by myself. I'm just saying. <laughs> the ladies aren't going to say anything, but <laughs> But he says, he says, be subject to your own husbands. Don't go out there and bless somebody else's husband. And you treat your husband poorly. Amen. <laughs> I'm in big trouble now. <laughs> Now listen, let's, let's do this. Let's set a definition for submission by first stating what it is not. Submission is not slavery. Amen. Submission is not involuntary servitude. Submission is not do what I say because I said it. Submission is not follow me because I'm the boss of you. <laughs> that is not submission. Here's a good definition of submission given to us by theologian uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem. He says this. He says, submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. An inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. Wives, husbands are wrong all the time. Like, tell me something I don't know, pastor. I... I know they're wrong. <laughs> the one I'm sitting next, um, no, no, I'm just—we're <laughs> wrong all the time. So submission doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be right all the time. We're wrong, but it's a gentleness that affirms the leadership of your husband. And I think the the ancient Chinese proverb might apply here. Do not get a fly off your friend's forehead with an (laughs) axe. You will certainly kill the fly, but you'll lose a friend. (laughs) It's a gentleness. That affirms the leadership of the husband. When a, when a wife is a believer and the husband is not, this gentle spirit of submission is an incredibly attractive quality even to an unbelieving man. Why? Because it, ad, it mirrors the life of Jesus Christ. What, more, what life is more attractive than the life of Christ? If you take a moment to study the life of Jesus, isn't his life an incredibly attractive life? He loved his enemies. He did good to them that wished to do harm to him. He didn't hang around with all the big shots, but he was accused of eating with sinners. How many people accuse you of eating with sinners? Think about it. His life in of itself is attractive. And Christ submitted himself for the sake of unbelievers. And when your unbelieving husband sees that submission, it is an incredibly attractive and beautiful quality that he can't help come running toward. For the sake of the gospel. Now this may not happen overnight. I don't want you to go home today and say, Pastor, I submitted today and it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm done with that submission thing. <laughs> He's still the same dude he was. <laughs> so, so it may not happen overnight, but it provides a powerful testimony that will impact the unbelieving husband. So powerful that Peter says that this type of wife can win her husband. Without words. Wow. Ladies, can you, can you imagine? And I know, like I said, we're wrong all the time. Husbands are wrong all the time. And it's a great temptation to want to just tell us exactly how wrong we are. In no uncertain terms. Usually followed by this. Are you listening to me? and you do it when the game is on, which makes it almost impossible for us to listen to you. We're not good at multitasking. That's not our gift. You know, the bulls are playing, and you want to you talk. I just tell every man in here, it's worth it to pay the extra $10 for the DVR box. I'm just telling you that right now. Put that game on pause and say, honey, whatever you want to talk about, I'm more than happy to talk with you. <laughs> but but, but it's, you can win him without words. Now, that doesn't mean the gospel is, isn't known by the husband. The gospel in words is not known. A wife will no doubt share her beliefs. But this is life enforcing and enhancing the claims of the wife's Christianity. He sees her life up close, including how she responds to her own failures. And it garnishes her faith. So the the idea of submission is attractive to the unbeliever. Now, the second element here is that you have the beauty of of a holy life. Now, watch what Peter's saying. He says, they may be won without a word by the conduct or the lifestyle of their wives. Without a word. Now, look what he says in verse 2 when they see your respectful and pure conduct. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, a word to my single ladies for just a moment. It's not going to be a Beyonce word. I'm not going to be like all the single ladies. No. A word to my single ladies for a moment. If you desire marriage and your conduct shows everybody that you have no ability to control your temper or your mouth and what you say, whatever comes up, comes out. Then you're making it hard on me to find your husband. I'm just saying. (laughs) Because men see this, believing men see this. And there's nobody that on purpose will sign up for that. Now, some of us got surprised later on. (laughs) Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> that was supposed to be inner thoughts. <laughs> but so, but nobody on purpose is going to do this. And so and so, you're you you, you you're respectful and pure conduct. This is the, the day-to-day challenge even for wives of mature Christian men. One thing to say it, another thing to put it in practice. What does this look like? Peter lists two qualities to aim for, respectful and pure. I take this to be morally pure, And we see that submission has its limits. It never includes any behavior that would displease God. If a husband requires you to do something that would displease God, you have the responsibility to say no. In other words, he shouldn't be able to say to you, come on, baby, let's go rob this bank. (laughs) No, not submitting to that. But understand the dynamic of respect that's in this phrase. Respectful. Why did Peter say respectful? Because men respond to respect, it is our greatest need. Mm. We appreciate you loving us. We do. But when you show and demonstrate respectful conversation and speech to your husband, it's something in us that just gets excited. It's attractive to us. You go up to your husband and say, you're that man of mine. Oh, I don't know what I would do without you. And I'm telling you right now, you going to dinner. <laughs> you won't be cooking that day <laughs> because we get turned on by respect. Paul puts it like this in, in Ephesians 5. He says, he says, wives, submit or respect your husbands. But he says, husbands, love your wives. Why? A woman's greatest need is love. A man's greatest need is respect. You don't believe me? Wait till your husband gets to work and send him some flowers at work. Nice big bouquet of roses, two dozen long stem. Gene send Rick Sr. some some flowers. He'll be like, thank you. Honey, those are beautiful flowers you sent me at work today. All the guys appreciated them. It's just not the same. Now you get to work and there's two dozen long stem roses with a big heart and some candy on your desk, and it says "For the love of my life." You might be taking off early that day. I'm just saying. Uh, uh, Mr. Manager, I got to leave. I'm sorry. I explain all that later. But I got to go. <laughs> So understand how this works. But in all other categories, strive for the wife, for her to walk, to be consistent with her talk. No wife will do this perfectly or even close to perfect. As we say here, it is not perfection, but direction that's important. It is the direction of a wife's life toward the lifestyle of re- respect and purity. You're not going to be perfect, but are you moving in that direction? in public and in private, if there are children as a mother, respect and purity. All of these priorities should reflect a woman who is morally upright in life and a respectful friend, a lover and companion to her husband. This is an incredibly attractive to a man. It is incredibly attractive to a man, which is why some unbelievers, unbelieving men, come to church to try to find a wife. Y'all didn't know that happened, did you? I've heard men say, go to church, find me a church girl. Well, why is that? Because it's attractive to have someone that's following the Lord. Okay? Now, if you come here just for that, you send him my way. We'll get him saved. <laughs> lastly, lastly, There's a priority of inward beauty. A priority of inward beauty that Peter's talking about. Verse 3, look what he says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Much has been said throughout the years about how Christian women are to adorn themselves. This text has been used to justify restrictions against makeup, skirts above the ankles, hair that is short, jewelry, and so forth. But what we must not miss is the greater point that Peter is making. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable. Now look at that word. Imperishable beauty. Of a gentle and quiet spirit. Imperishable means that beauty doesn't die away. That beauty is not destroyed. That beauty cannot be killed. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, is very precious. In God's sight, it's very precious. Watch this. The first priority for the Christian woman and wives is an internal beauty for many reasons. The one here is its evangelical power. Real feminine beauty is a beauty of character, love, kindness, and grace. It shows itself in innumerable moments of sacrifice, giving, and gracious words. When a wife's life is grace with the gospel, it is a great example of the power of the gospel in the home. I'll close by saying this. To believing women, let your inner beauty testify of the grace of Christ in your life. It's not important what you have on. It is important who you have on. Think of the billions of dollars That are spent in this country every single day. Because somebody has told you ladies that beauty is defined a certain way. Someone has said to you that if your hair is not styled a certain way, then somehow you're not attractive. Someone has told you that if you're not wearing the latest fashions and designer clothing, then somehow you'll never have a husband. I came to tell you today that it's much less important whether your purse is a Michael Kors or whether your heart is a Jesus Christ. That is what matters to God. God is not impressed by the designer who's on our handbag or on our shoe label. God's not impressed by that. God is impressed as to whether or not J.C. is written on your heart. I just helped somebody move from M.K. to J.C. just that quick. (laughs) That's what impresses God. Because Peter says... That this is what is precious in the sight of the Lord. It is the inner beauty of Christ that Isaiah had in mind when he wrote these words. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should. Should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men. Hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. With Christ. What he did. Was more important. Than how he looked. What he did was more important than where he lived. He didn't look like a king, but he was the king of kings. He didn't look like a healer, but he laid hands on a blind man and he received his sight. He didn't look like a savior, but he went to Calvary carrying a cross, beaten and bruised. For our sins and our transgression, He didn't look like a savior. But they said, behold, there is the king of the Jews. He didn't look like he had power over death when they took him off that cross. His lifeless, limp body wrapped and carried to a tomb that wasn't even his. But the Bible says that on the third day... Even though he didn't look like he would get up, he got up with all power in his hand. Victory over death. It's not what you look like. It's how you are on the inside. Who are you on the inside? Stand on your feet all over this room. You can dress up your outer man. Ladies, you can dress up yourself, but don't neglect to be like Christ in your heart. For the fancies of clothes will not catch the eye of your Lord. God doesn't look at that. He looks at what's inside your heart. It is precious in His eyes. And he will take your heart and use that submissive heart to save the life of that unbelieving husband. You will win him because your life is a great example of the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. as we share this song with you.